Chapter One of the Birth of Tragedy or Hellenism and Pessimism by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by William Hausmann. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. One. We shall have gained much for the science of aesthetics, when once we have perceived not only by logical inference, but by the immediate certainty of intuition that the continuous development of art is bound up with the duplexity of the Apollonian and the Dionysian. In like manner as procreation is dependent on the duality of the sexes, involving perpetual conflicts with only periodically intervening reconciliations. These names we borrow from the Greeks, who disclose to the intelligent observer the profound mysteries of their view of art, not indeed in concepts, but in the impressively clear figures of their world of deities. It is in connection with Apollo and Dionysus, the two art deities of the Greeks, that we learn that there existed in the Grecian world a wide antithesis, in origin and aims, between the art of the shaper, the Apollonian, and the non-plastic art of music, that of Dionysus. Both these so heterogeneous tendencies run parallel to each other, for the most part openly at variance, and continually inciting each other to new and more powerful births, to perpetuate in them the strife of this antithesis, which is but seemingly bridged over by their mutual term, art, till at last, by a metaphysical miracle of the Hellenic will, they appear paired with each other, and through this pairing eventually generate the equally Dionysian and Apollonian artwork of Attic tragedy. In order to bring these two tendencies within closer range, let us conceive them first of all as the separate art worlds of dreamland and drunkenness, between which physiological phenomena a contrast may be observed analogous to that existing between the Apollonian and the Dionysian. In dreams, according to the concept of Lucretius, the glorious divine figures first appeared to the souls of men. In dreams the great shaper beheld the charming corporeal structure of superhuman beings, and the Hellenic poet, if consulted on the mysteries of poetic inspiration, would likewise have suggested dreams, and would have offered an explanation resembling that of Hans Sachs in The Meistersingers. My friend, just this is poet's task, his dreams to read and to unmask. Trust me, illusions, truths thrice sealed, in dream to man will be revealed. All verse-craft and poetization is but sooth-dream interpretation. The beauteous appearance of the dream-worlds, in the production of which every man is a perfect artist, is the presupposition of all plastic art, and in fact, as we shall see, of an important half of poetry also. We take delight in the immediate apprehension of form. All forms speak to us, there is nothing indifferent, nothing superfluous. But together, with the highest life of this dream reality, we also have, glimmering through it, the sensation of its appearance. Such, at least, is my experience, 
as to the frequency, aye, normality of which I could adduce many proofs, as also the sayings of the poets. Indeed, the man of a philosophic turn has a foreboding that underneath this reality in which we live and have our being, another and altogether different reality lies concealed, and that, therefore, it is also an appearance. And Schopenhauer actually designates the gift of occasionally regarding men and things as mere phantoms and dream pictures, as the criterion of philosophical ability. Accordingly, the man susceptible to art stands in the same relation to the reality of dreams as the philosopher to the reality of existence. He is a close and willing observer, for from these pictures he reads the meaning of life, and by these processes he trains himself for life. And it is perhaps not only the agreeable and friendly pictures that he realizes in himself with such perfect understanding, the earnest, the troubled, the dreary, the gloomy, the sudden checks, the tricks of fortune, the uneasy presentiments, in short, the whole divine comedy of life, and the inferno, also pass before him, not merely like pictures on the wall, for he too lives and suffers in these scenes, and yet not without that fleeting sensation of appearance. And perhaps many a one will, like myself, recollect having sometimes called out cheeringly, and not without success amid the dangers and terrors of dream-life, quote, "'It is a dream! I will dream on!' I have likewise been told of persons capable of continuing the causality of one and the same dream for three and even more successive nights, all of which facts clearly testify that our innermost being, the common substratum of all of us, experiences our dreams with deep joy and cheerful acquiescence. This cheerful acquiescence in the dream experience has likewise been embodied by the Greeks in their Apollo. For Apollo, as the god of all shaping energies, is also the soothsaying god. He, who, as the etymology of the name indicates, is the shining one, the deity of light, also rules over the fair appearance of the inner world of fantasies. The higher truth, the perfection of these states in contrast to the only partially intelligible everyday world, aye, the deep consciousness of nature, healing and helping in sleep and dream, is at the same time the symbolical analogue of the faculty of soothsaying, and in general of the arts, through which life is made possible and worth living. But also, that delicate line which the dream-picture must not overstep, lest it act pathologically, in which case appearance being reality pure and simple would impose upon us, must not be wanting in the picture of Apollo. That measured limitation, that freedom from the wilder emotions, that philosophical calmness of the sculptor-god, his eye must be sun-like, according to his origin, 
even when it is angry and looks displeased, the sacredness of his beauteous appearance is still there. And so we might apply to Apollo, in an eccentric sense, what Schopenhauer says of the man wrapped in the veil of Maya, from Welt aus Villa und Vorstellung, Part 1, page 416. Quote, just as in a stormy sea, unbounded in every direction, rising and falling with howling mountainous waves, a sailor sits in a boat and trusts in his frail bark. So in the midst of a world of sorrows, the individual sits quietly supported by and trusting in his principium individuationis. Indeed, we might say of Apollo that in him the unshaken faith in his principium and the quiet sitting of the man wrapped therein have received their sublimest expression. And we might even designate Apollo as the glorious divine image of the principium individuationis, from out of the gestures and looks of which all the joy and wisdom of appearance, together with its beauty, speak to us. In the same work, Schopenhauer has described to us the stupendous awe which seizes upon man, when, of a sudden, he is at a loss to account for the cognitive forms of a phenomenon, in that the principle of reason, in some one of its manifestations, seems to admit of an exception. Add to this all the blissful ecstasy which rises from the innermost depths of man, ay, of nature, at this same collapse of the principium individuationis, and we shall gain an insight into the being of the Dionysian, which is brought within closest ken, perhaps, by the analogy of drunkenness. It is either under the influence of the narcotic draught, of which the hymns of all primitive men and peoples tell us, or by the powerful approach of spring penetrating all nature with joy that those Dionysian emotions awake, in the augmentation of which the subjective vanishes to complete self-forgetfulness. So also in the German Middle Ages, singing and dancing crowds, ever increasing in number, were born from place to place under this same Dionysian power. In these St. John's and St. Vitus's dancers, we again perceive the Bacchic choruses of the Greeks, with their previous history in Asia Minor, as far back as Babylon and the orgiastic Sakea. There are some who, from lack of experience or obtuseness, will turn away from such phenomena as, quote, folk diseases, end quote, with a smile of contempt or pity, prompted by the consciousness of their own health. Of course, the poor wretches do not divine what a cadaverous-looking and ghastly aspect this very, quote, health, end quote, of theirs presents when the glowing life of the Dionysian revelers rushes past them. Under the charm of the Dionysian, not only is the covenant between man and man again established, but also estranged, hostile, or subjugated nature again celebrates her reconciliation with her lost son, man. Of her own accord, earth proffers her gifts, 
and peacefully the beasts of prey approach from the desert and the rocks. The chariot of Dionysus is bedecked with flowers and garlands. Panthers and tigers pass beneath his yoke. Change Beethoven's jubilee song into a painting, and if your imagination be equal to the occasion when the awe-struck millions sink into the dust, you will then be able to approach the Dionysian. Now is the slave a free man. Now all the stubborn, hostile barriers which necessity, caprice, or, quote, shameless fashion, end quote, has set up between man and man are broken down. Now, at the evangel of cosmic harmony, each one feels himself not only united, reconciled, blended with his neighbor, but as one with him as if the veil of Maya has been torn, and were now merely fluttering in tatters before the mysterious primordial unity. In song and in dance, man exhibits himself as a member of a higher community. He has forgotten how to walk and speak, and is on the point of taking a dancing flight into the air. His gestures bespeak enchantment. Even as the animals now talk, and as the earth yields milk and honey, so also something supernatural sounds forth from him. He feels himself a god. He himself now walks about enchanted and elated even as the gods whom he saw walking about in his dreams. Man is no longer an artist. He has become a work of art. The artistic power of all nature here reveals itself in the tremors of drunkenness to the highest gratification of the primordial unity. The noblest clay, the costliest marble, namely man, is here kneaded and cut, and the chisel strokes of the Dionysian world artist are accompanied with the cry of the Eleusinian mysteries. Quote, Ye bow in the dust, O millions, thy maker, mortal dust divine. End, quote. End of chapter one. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.